Hi, this is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I am here today as a facilitator for the infection and tumor section of the POSNA annual meeting 2020. As you're aware, the meeting has been canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, we are trying to give the listeners the opportunity for some discussion about some of the papers presented at POSNA this year. I am here today for a discussion of the infection and tumor papers with Sam Spencer from Boston and Tom McPartland from Rutgers. We are going to be hearing three excellent papers, the first from Alex Arcader, titled Pediatric Chondroblastoma and the Need for Chest Staging, the second titled Abbreviated Non-Contrast Imaging Protocol Decreases Cost and Improves Value in Treatment of Pediatric Musculoskeletal Infection by Todd Bloomberg from Seattle Children's. And finally, Surgical Management of Children with Osteomyelitis Results in Significantly Greater Identification of the Causative Organism. Results from the Cortices Multicenter Database by Salil Upasani from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. I am now going to introduce Sam Spencer and Tom McPartland, who will lead the discussion of these three excellent papers. We hope you enjoy. So we're going to start with the two infection papers in this section, which both came at pediatric bone infections at, from different angles. So Leo, we'll start with yours, uh, which highlighted the multicenter cortices database and really looked at whether surgical biopsy of infections was better or equivalent to IR biopsy of infections and really came up with the idea that you could get much better quality culture data from surgically treated osteomyelitis. Yes, exactly. So I was interested in looking at this because I was kind of under the assumption that our institution was extremely biased towards surgical treatment of osteomyelitis. And just talking with the other members in Cortices, it seemed like maybe we were doing a little too much surgery. So we kind of went around and talked about how we approached simple osteomyelitis. So purposefully to exclude deep infections with abscesses or intraosseous abscesses and realized that we were actually kind of split 50-50. Some of us, you know, half of us treated it with IV antibiotics, the other half treated it with surgery and aspiration. So we thought that it would be a good way of combining our data to see if there were any differences in the culture-positive results that we could get. And as the data showed, there was definitely a much higher rate with the surgical biopsy, but I think a big caveat, and I kind of spend a lot of time in the limitations focusing on that, that people who are treated with surgery, there was definitely a selection bias for the sicker kids. So, you know, slightly higher MRSA rate. And if we looked at some of the severity scores that have come out of Dallas or even Vanderbilt, uh, ultimately, I bet those kids will end up being a little bit sicker and maybe with more severe infections. So the paper is going to kind of delve into that. But for the four minute podium presentation, we wanted to just focus on our ability to get positive cultures. Great. And so the, the paper clearly showed that surgically obtained cultures had a much higher rate of positivity than IR obtained cultures. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and uh, go to Todd's uh, paper, which really looked at getting fast sequence rapid MRIs and their efficacy and utility in uh, osteomyelitis. And I think convincingly showed that you could 
use these fast sequences, which were, as I recall, about 10 minutes to accurately show osteomyelitis at a much lower cost and without needing sedation. Yes. Thanks, Sam. This was really kind of a unique opportunity. Our institution has grown so much and we had such limited MRI access um, that we were finding ourselves waiting what felt like a disproportionate amount of time initially to get imaging. And especially when you tied that with the logistics of sedation and the logistics of potentially even putting an OR on hold, it became quite a challenge to get our standard MRI. And so working really with our ED providers and with our radiology team, we were able to really distill an MRI down to something that gives us the information we need. Is there an infection or not? And then is there an abscess that we need to go after or not? Is there a fluid collection that needs drainage? And so it was a really great opportunity to work together as a team with all these different divisions and ultimately come together on a process that seemed to work out pretty well uh, to the point that at this point, very few of my partners are ordering the MRI with contrast unless it's an, a non-standard presentation, symptoms have been present for a long time, or there's just something unusual. And then specifically for the kids who are under two, they just don't have enough bone that's developed yet. And so we found that it probably was not a good idea to exclude them from contrast. Todd, that was a fascinating study, uh, and I'm looking forward to discussing you know, both of those papers, but I wanted to focus on Alex's paper a little bit. You know, Alex, I was really impressed with the study design here. You collaborated with uh, you know, several colleagues you know, throughout the uh, northern and southern hemisphere, and you guys were really able to take a long, hard look at chondroblastoma and whether or not we needed to be staging these kids with chest CTs, which obviously incurs about seven millisieverts of radiation, looking at an average protocol, about three and a half times background radiation in a given year, you know, what really was the incidence of lung metastases when you look at that pediatric population? And, you know, I thought it was really great how you were able to draw from a a broad range of a a large number of patients, you know, for a a tumor study to be able to identify whether we should be getting involved in, in CTing the chest on these kids. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your comments, Tom. Um, you know, I think you, you, you nailed it. I mean, my uh, motivation was to try to avoid doing unnecessary testing in kids. So, you know, for over a decade treating chondroblastomas in kids, I have never seen metastasis in a benign chondroblastoma. And I just couldn't understand why people keep on repeating that there is a 2% incidence. You see, if you read textbooks, if you ask the residents, you go to orthobullets, there's always this 2% incidence that was never really proven. So I really first tried to look into what's there in the literature that makes people believe that it's a 2% incidence. And I started digging all the papers and all the cases of lung metastasis in chondroblastoma were isolated case reports. In the bigger series, all the cases were in adults. So I got all my... uh, Peds, oncology, ortho people together and try to pull as many pediatric chondroblastomas as possible. And, you know, not surprising, the we had zero metastasis in this, what's the largest series, 130. And then in the literature, pulling data from over 1,600 patients, the incidence was 0.4%. So that's, you know, it was a simple paper with one goal. We weren't aiming towards the treatment of chondroblastoma or anything like that. It was just whether lung metastasis occurs or not and whether we need to be staging patients in a systematic fashion. Well, I thought what was most fascinating, Alex, about that review was, you know, that table that you presented in the middle of your presentation with the 1,600, you know, patient study as a meta-analysis of all those studies, you know, that 0.4% was really interesting, but none of them were pediatric patients. What was the youngest patient 
that had metastatic disease to the lungs. Was that identified? Could you find that in that literature search? Um, yes, not in the table because they didn't exist, right? And the isolated case reports, if I'm not mistaken, there was an eight-year-old in an isolated case report. And it gets a little murky too in the literature because a lot of the times people refer to as malignant chondroblastoma, which is not the same animal. So we're trying to aim only on the through benign chondroblastoma that any pediatric orthopod will treat in their career. Uh, and I think eight was the youngest and was a case. Right. And that was prior to, you know, you recording your data in your series, which stretched over how many years when you look at the cases that you looked at? Our data, it depends. I think that varied from center to center, but at least, you know, around 10 years of data in each of the centers. Some go back a little bit more. So, Alex, do you feel comfortable saying that for benign pediatric chondroblastoma, no chest staging imaging is needed? Yes. As a matter of fact, I haven't really done CT for chondroblastoma probably in about 10 years. And I did do x-rays for a long time. And every time I did it, it would question myself, why am I even putting this person through it? Because it creates anxiety on top of everything when you're saying, okay, we just have to rule out there's nothing in the chest. So I do not do it routinely. And it, it turns out that there's a lot of centers when you start talking to people. There are a lot of centers throughout the world where people don't stage at all, but just no one talks about it. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. So maybe we can turn back to some questions and discussion for the infection papers. So with the imaging paper, Todd, we had a question saying, how does this integrate into your current pathway? And if you had any false negatives with this new uh, quick fast sequence MRI? Yeah, great question. So this has integrated into our pathway in that what has changed really has just been the communication in terms of MRI and timing. So whereas before, I would say a number of patients, the plan was to admit to the pediatric service and sort of let them work up musculoskeletal infection. And if they thought the patient needed an MRI, then they would get an MRI. And the communication wasn't always instantaneous. And so what we've been able to do is sort of speed up the communication if there's a concern for musculoskeletal infection based on exam or based on labs. And especially for a patient who's got a history that is fairly acute onset of symptoms and elevated inflammatory markers, then we get involved very early. And depending on the severity of the symptoms and the elevation in their labs, we make a decision with the ED sort of together as should we get fast MRI. And part of the reason we try to get the decision made early is so we can communicate with the radiology. And we don't have techs in-house for overnight. And so if we're going to get an MRI, we need to make a decision before, at this point, 11 o'clock at night is when they leave. And so they would agree to do these studies, but they would not agree to come in overnight to do these studies. If they were going to come in overnight, they were going to do a full MRI with contrast just because they wanted to avoid the potential of a false negative. However, after doing 45 of these studies and not getting one false negative where you know the imaging came back normal, but the kids still had something that we missed, it didn't happen. Um, there was such a sensitive sequence with the STIR imaging where if there's anything fluid sensitive, it's going to get detected. And then you know, the next question is, is this something that needs drainage? And so we often had an answer within 10 or 15 minutes based on the MRI. And for the majority of these kids, they didn't require really anything other than some support from child life sometimes. And, but, you know, from a sedation perspective, some, you know, creative immobilization was often all that was necessary. 
in order to get diagnostic sequences. And so from our perspective, it, it really enhanced the ability to get imaging. So the time from when they showed up in the ED until the time we got an MRI, as well as really took a lot of the logistical challenges off of trying to get anesthesia involved, trying to get MRI involved, trying to get the OR involved to figure out what was often such a difficult situation in terms of timing and in terms of imaging has made our pathway much more efficient. Okay, well, so uh, I had a quick question for you too. So for our traditional MRIs with contrast, the thought is that if we have a false negative, it's kind of a, you know, a time course of the disease. So at the time of that original MRI, maybe nothing was there, but then as the condition evolved, abscess in the bone might have developed over time. You understand what I'm saying? How do you determine that for these, you know? So have you been able to do kind of serial fast MRs to, or like have any patients needed it in their course of treatment? Or you've been able to do that? Yeah, so the, we had two patients that ultimately got a repeat MRI because they didn't seem to be responding to antibiotic treatments. Their CRP wasn't trending down. But these, when we repeated the MRI with contrast, there was still no abscess there. And so essentially what that tells me is that it was an unusual organism that their primary coverage wasn't getting. So not every patient, as your paper points out, we don't always get positive blood cultures. And so for some of the unusual organisms or the less standard organisms that aren't covered necessarily by our first-line management with cefazolin, that when we repeated the MRI, expecting that for sure there's going to be an abscess there, and that's why they're not getting better, still wasn't an abscess there. So it gave us a little bit more comfort that maybe we needed to broaden the antibiotic coverage. But in both circumstances, the infectious disease team said, you don't really need to, let's just give this a few more days. And in both circumstances, the, the labs ended up trending better and it just took a few more days to get them there. Todd, I thought it was really interesting that you guys used a diffusion-weighted imaging. That's not something I had familiarity with, so I went and I looked it up a little bit. And I guess it was developed you know, to look at ischemic regions in the brain, and then it's used in oncology now. But I guess it looks at the motion of the particles, and you, so you have to have really fast acquisition time. So that also helps with the patient motion issue, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the way the, the fusion coefficients work, and my radiology colleagues would explain this much better than I, but essentially the diffusion-weighted imaging is going to show where there's certainly a fluid collection and when there was brightness on that diffusion-weighted imaging and then corresponding darkness on the ADC map, which is the apparent diffusion coefficient, it really gave confidence to the radiologists and, and subsequently to us that there was a fluid collection. If it was a really small fluid collection, oftentimes we weren't planning on going in there for a, an abscess that was you know, a few millimeters. And so it didn't really change our management. If it was that small of a fluid collection, it didn't necessarily mean we needed to go in there and decompress it surgically. That would lead to a, another question for your two papers about practice management. I think in bone infections and joint infections really is the clinical exam. So we were both wondering about how this changed your empiric management. So if someone is doing well and getting better on empiric antibiotics, do you think that you need a fluid sample? Do you hold antibiotics for, and get a sample? before you give them. So what does Salil and Todd think about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think uh, kind of over the years, so I can probably speak better about what's happening at our individual institution than what's happening at the 18 centers across the country. But kind of traditionally, the orthopedist was always the first one consulted for any type of bone or joint infection. And over the past five or six years, that's evolved a little bit where maybe the hospitalist admits the kid and then consults the orthopedist. So I think the time course of assessing these patients has changed over the last five or six years. So I think in our initial eval where the orthopedists were in charge and would evaluate the kid early, 
you know, physical exam was obviously extremely important in kind of localizing the source of pain and looking for evidence of infection. But I think MR has also kind of become a standard of care in our assessment of these kids too. So oftentimes we get the MR at the same time that the kid is getting admitted for IV antibiotics. So that's just an additional data point. And at least at our center, when we identify a bone infection on the MR, that kind of means a pretty consistent trip to the operating room to get a sample from that site. So, I mean, in terms of your question, I think physical exam is equally important, but with that additional data of the MR, I think it guides our our treatment. Do either of you think there's ever a role for admitting someone that has a good history and exam for isolated osteo and is clinically stable and treating them empirically with antibiotics without an MRI and an operative sample? I think at least at our institution, we've had such a high incidence of associated infections, so myositis or subperiosteal abscesses, that it's become our standard of care to obtain an MR at the time of admission. And I think a couple of papers that have come out of our institution kind of support that pathway. So I don't know, Todd, how do you guys manage these kids? Yeah, I would agree with you. I think the MRI has probably become the standard of care. And if anything, it helps from the standpoint of figuring out, do they need antibiotics and for how long do they need antibiotics? I mean, certainly the other diagnoses that sort of masquerade transient synovitis being the first one that comes to mind, the kid who's refusing to bear weight and has mildly elevated inflammatory markers. But, you know, something about their exam looks a little bit more concerning. They're very focal with their tenderness to the you know, proximal femur. So those are the patients where getting an MRI, and even though you know, you're spending money to do that fast MRI, when you saw that there was no bony edema and that you know, simply they just had a, a really small hip effusion, then you could sort of be a little bit more comfortable that you know, this is likely transient synovitis. They have a story that lines up with transient synovitis and that they could be observed closely and likely didn't need antibiotics as long as they continue to improve. Often we were giving these kids Tordal in the emergency department and within three or four hours, they'd have marked improvement in their symptoms after getting a dose of Tordal. And so that gave us the confidence that this kid can go home, doesn't need to be observed and doesn't need antibiotics. So as far as getting an MRI, I think it's pretty much everyone needs the MRI at this point if you're that concerned for a treatment. But whether you can you know, simply empirically treat, absolutely. I mean, our frontline management, unless there was a subperiosteoabscess, or soft tissue abscess was simply to treat with empiric antibiotics. And if their CRP trended down, then ultimately convert them to oral antibiotics for a total of four weeks typically or until consistently CRP was undetectable. So finally, CRP came up and that was the other infection paper, you know, that was in our section here. John Scheneker was presenting on, you know, some data on CRP. So is that also factoring into your algorithm, you know, the CRP trending down? I know certainly that's what, what we're doing. Is that consistent amongst all, all three of you? Alex, you, you can chime in as well on this. Yeah, you know, I have a following that and what Todd just said, I had a question for everyone in the panel and and a comment. I think they're two different animals. You know, we don't routinely get an MRI from the ED admission. A lot of the times patients are admitted and we'll get the MRI when the availability comes. And most of our acute osteos are treated with antibiotics and not, not surgery. So that differs a little bit from from what Salil said, he has the data from our place through Cortices, so he knows the data better than I do. But, you know, I think that the important thing for people listening to us is to, it's two different animals, right? Septic joint, I mean, that's different. And then Todd talked about it, uh, toxic synovitis and, and septic joint. And that I don't think you necessarily need 
an MRI right away. You need definitely ultrasound, you need a tap, et cetera. But, and then the other thing is the healthy kid that has pain in the limb and then has osteo. So my question for you guys is, if you have a kid with classic septic joint of the hip, for example, and you tap it, I mean, there's no question, it's a septic joint. Do you go to the OR right away or you get the MRI to make sure there's not an associated osteo to that septic joint? Yeah, so again, our pathway is to get that MRI first before going to the OR. Traditionally, again, we if we had skipped the MRI phase, we would have tapped the femoral neck because oftentimes that septic hip is coming from the metaphysis. But now we end up getting that MR imaging and having that data before going to the OR. And I would agree. I would say now that we have such easier access to an MRI, our protocol is to get the MRI first. And that gives us much more confidence that there's nothing else we're going to be missing. And I think John Schenecker's data that he's presented on this is there's such a surprisingly high incidence of associated pyomyositis and other things that may need to be addressed at the time of surgery that we'd like to have that information before we go in there and drain a hip and then see that the kid doesn't necessarily respond as we would anticipate. So two or three days later, we're wondering why their CRP hasn't trended down. And then we're talking about a return to the OR. Do we need to image them again? And so it just gives us much more confidence that this is an isolated septic hip and we can wash it out and be more confident that they're going to respond to treatment. Sam, do you want to answer the question? I'll answer it too. We get an MRI on, on everybody who we're going to take to the OR for septic hip unless they are an extremist. You know, the kid that's really sick, you know, uh, we're probably doing that in the OR and we'll deal with the osteo later if we have to. Get them antibiotics, get the hip trained. We differ a little bit. I think we're also talking both septic arthritis and osteo here. In our case, if we have clinical picture of infection and a, and a uh, hip tap or joint tap that's high, we go to the OR, we don't necessarily get an MRI. So our algorithm differs just a little bit. We also commonly treat empirically. And then if someone is not responding within a couple of days with improvement in their inflammatory markers, their fevers, their weight bearing, et cetera, then we go to imaging and potentially to the OR. So I think there's just little differences between our protocols. I think in conclusion, these are all really excellent papers that I think have potential to change practice. I think for infection, I still think it's really important to look at the patient and see how their clinical picture is. Is that That's the bottom line in terms of where you go with the treatment. Great. Well, thank you all for uh, your participation tonight and to all the listeners. I want to thank again, Sam and Tom for coordinating this and making sure that it was a lively discussion. And don't forget to look on the annual meeting website for information about the other podcasts related to the annual meeting, as well as the monthly JPO podcast and interview with the PD pod. Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.